When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. No subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one over $10 by visiting g.co slash play slash all the books. That's g.co slash play slash all the books. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. To all the books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 175, and today we are talking about books being released on September 11th, 2018, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. Hi. It's the rare After Dark recording. Yes. Yes. We had to, to put it off today till the end of the day. So who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> it's Monday evening. We made it through Monday, though. So yes, but you know, next we at week, least have that in our favor. Next week, all of our shows will be recorded much earlier because you and mm-hmm. I are going to be gone. So yes. while people are listening to the podcast, we could have been abducted by aliens, but nobody will know until the week after. Oh, I do love a good cliffhanger. Yes. Did you ever, I've, I've probably told this story before, do you know the story about Ruth Rendell and how she got her start as a writer? I don't think so. The mystery so. author. Uh, she mm-hmm. used to write for her town's paper. She used to cover local government events and she thought they were extremely boring. And she used to cover the town council meetings and basically like make up what happens and not really pay attention or uh, even attend sometimes. And turn mm-hmm. them in, and nothing ever happened. And then one time she did that, and it turned out that one of the speakers uh, died in the middle of his talk. Oh. And uh, she neglected to mention that. <laughs> and she got fired, and then she thought, that'll, that'll do it. Maybe I'll write books. <laughs> Whoa. It's pretty cool. I mean, not for that man, but for everyone else involved. That's, for everybody but the dead. That's guy. a cool origin story. <laughs> It's like almost too good to be true as origin stories go. Yeah, but it's the kind of thing that like if you wrote it into a movie or something, the executives would probably be like, "Oh, that's not believable." <laughs> it's cool. Do you know what else is unbelievable? What? We are giving away a 6-month subscription to Owlcrate Jr. That's very cool. Yes, it's a book bookish. I can't say the word book today. <laughs> Sorry. It's a bookish subscription box for readers 8 to 12 or those who are young at heart. And each box features a new release middle grade novel, exclusives from the author, and three to five usable goodies that fit the month's theme and encourage creativity and learning. So you go to bookriot.com slash Junior giveaway to enter. And good luck to everyone who does that. 
Cross your fingers. I just realized, like, I don't know when the deadline is. It doesn't say in the notes. I'm trying to find it. I was not very smooth about doing it. Uh, You have to (laughs) enter by the end of September 17th, 2018. Okay. I said I added that year just in case you thought maybe (laughs) this giveaway was running for a year. You don't, in fact, have a year or five. Who knows what it could have been. They gave away a pink house from John Cougar Mellencamp on MTV faster than that. That is a deep <laughs> It's after dark. Why don't I'm we get to the I'm still mad I didn't win that house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my first pick today is fantastic. It's The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock by Imogen Hermes Gowar, which is a fabulous name. Let's just be honest, that's a fantastic name. Also, when I googled her name, because it was so fantastic, her author picture came up and she has the most fabulous teal hair, so... You don't even need to read the book. She's just great. Just like that. Just It's amazing. But She's a mermaid. The book has a mermaid. Oh, it's great. so awesome. So it takes place in 1785. There is a businessman named Jonah Hancock, and he uh, is woken by a captain of one of his ships, comes to his door, and says, hey, I sold your boat. And he's hmm. like, okay, that's not good. And he's like, no, no, but... I sold it for this, and hands him a infant-sized dead thing, which he purports to be a mermaid. He sold his boat for a mermaid. Okay. So that's not cool with him, uh, but it turns out that people want to see a mermaid. So he starts showing it around, word gets out, it kind of launches him into the upper crust of society, all of a sudden he's like a minor celebrity, and in his journeys rubbing elbows with the rich and famous, he meets the most famous courtesan in London named Angelica Neal, and they strike up a romance. Um, The mermaid, like I said, it's not alive. It's gross and small, and it's really just the catalyst for everything that happens in the book. Um, And so Angelica wants to display this mermaid in her brothel for like a week, so they strike up this bargain, and it's all about... You know, what the mermaid brings into their life, both good and bad. The writing is gorgeous. Gorgeous. Her language, her use of language, which I cannot do, is amazing. It's just amazing. Uh, There are so many memorable scenes, and the details are exquisite. And I'm assuming realistic the time I wasn't actually there at that time in 17... (laughs) Or was I? But it's, you know, it's just amazing. It's so much fun. Uh, so I keep seeing some reviews being like, it's full of magical realism, and I'm like, mm, not really. There's a little magical element to it, but it's not, if you see magical realism, say no. Um, but it's still a magical debut, and it is called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, and it's by Imogen Hermes Gowar. That sounds awesome. My first pick this week is a slightly seri- more serious turn. <laughs> um, it's Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger by Soraya Chamali. And this is a deep dive into exactly what it sounds like, um, women and anger. And the slug line for this is so good that I'm not going to attempt to rewrite it. It's makes the case that anger is not what gets in our way. It is our way. So the author goes into all of the reasons that women are 
angry. We do most of the housework, even if we also make most of the money and are caring for the children. We're underpaid, we're overworked, we can't seem to win the battle about whether we're um, pretty enough or dressed up enough or attractive enough, or maybe we're dressing up too much and now we're slutty. There are all of these reasons that are well documented about why it's tough to be a woman in society, which isn't to say that it's easy to be a man. It's just to say that women have a lot of reasons to be angry, but we're not encouraged to express our anger. We're not taught how to talk about our anger. We're trained from very early on. We're socialized from very early on to suppress it, to try to smooth out social situations and make them comfortable. And so Chimali's argument here is, let's not do that. Let's harness our individual anger to change our individual circumstances and then join together with collective anger to propel forward. And she talks about that this is the core really of the feminist movement in the same way that anger at mistreatment was the core of the civil rights movement, is the core of the movements that we're seeing right now towards greater LGBTQ inclusivity. Anger is powerful and women can change the narrative about it. Uh, She goes into a lot of studies, so it's really nice to have data to back up these kinds of things. And she talks about like that women are most angry about in relationships about the behavior of their partners. The thing that men in hetero relationships are most angry about is women's anger at them. So if you've ever had that interaction where if you're the woman in the relationship, you say like in a straight relationship, you say like, I'm angry because you did X. And the man responds back like, well, it hurts my feelings or upsets me that you're angry. It's that. And that thing, like that particular interaction is recorded as very common. Uh, and she gets into what that is, that like it, that if the threat of men being angry is the thing that keeps us from expressing our feelings, what happens if we are like, okay, cool, you guys can be angry because we're angry too. And here's what we're going to do about it. Um, it's the, this really fascinating and I think well thought out presentation. She looks at anger in marriages. She looks at anger in the workplace, in society at large, anger from an intersectional perspective. She's a woman of color. And so she writes about, uh, from a place of knowledge, the intersections of race, class, color, gender in how women experience the world and all of the things that they have to be angry about, and then suggests ways to use this anger to move women forward in the world and to express it knowing that we're justified in expressing anger without having to apologize for it or feel guilty or worry about someone's response to the feelings that we are allowed to have and that are natural. And that this starts from childhood. She shares uh, some studies about that and also from her own experience watching her daughter learn very early on to suppress her anger, even when she's trying not to teach her daughter that. Um, It's a nice mix, I think, of researched nonfiction and personal perspective. And I really, really found a lot of value in it. Again, it's Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. All right. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> just let's just keep rolling. So, uh, I'm going to tell you about our next sponsor. It is the Great American Read. PBS has a list of America's 100 best love novels, and they need you to help pick number one. Don't miss the return of the Great American Read, a seven-part television series and online event that has all of America talking about books. Join host Meredith Vieira and some of your favorite authors, celebrities, and athletes for a celebration of reading. You can go to pbs.org and see the list of 100 titles, then vote for your favorites, share with your friends, and join the conversation at hashtag GreatReadPBS. 
There are so many good books on this list. So many that I love. A Confederacy of Dunces. There's A Prayer for Owen Meany. How do you even, like, pick? And then there were none by <laughs> Agatha Christie. Anne of Green Gables. I'm just in the A's still. Uh, Beloved. Another Country. Uh, Catch-22. I, I don't know what I would pick. Uh, I, and then if I did pick one, I don't know that I could, like, tell anyone because I would immediately want to change my answer. These books are a color purple. I'm still scrolling. It's crazy. <gasps> Lonesome Dove. <laughs> all right. Bring it back, <laughs> I'm excited There's 100 about books the books. on this list. We can't read them all. <laughs> I'm, I've got lost looking at the list now. So watch The Great American Read this fall. It's Tuesdays at 8, 7 central, and it's starting September 11th, which is today, on your PBS station. Tune in to discover if your favorite novel is voted as America's favorite book. Yay. All right. I'm, I'm so intrigued about the title of your next book that I just can't wait for you to start talking about it. Oh, yeah. So uh, one of one of our rioters was like, hey, did anyone see this book like a few weeks ago? And I think all of us requested it at the same time. We were like, yes, I want to read this. <laughs> it's The Dinosaur Artist, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Quest for Earth's Ultimate Trophy by Paige Williams. It's about dinosaurs. That's pretty exciting. I didn't used mm -hmm. to be excited about dinosaurs when I was young, but now I think they're pretty awesome. So, I think this is like a thing that happens to people in their yeah. 30s and 40s. Is like you get old enough to be amazed by science and history, and then all of a sudden dinosaurs seem like the coolest thing. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. When I was a little kid, I was like, boring. But now I think they're pretty rad. So this is the story of Eric Procopi. He is the 38-year-old Floridian and fossil collector, enthusiast, obsessive. He has been hunting for fossils since he was young. He used to go looking for shark's teeth. He would dive. So he hunts for fossils. He prepares and cleans them. And he sells them. And he ends up selling a nearly complete eight, I think it was eight feet long skeleton of a T-Batar, which is close related to the Tyrannosaurus. And <laughs> it sells at auction for over one million dollars. <laughs> yeah. And but it turns out that this skeleton that he sold at auction uh, came from Mongolia and a group of paleontologists who were like, you don't have a right to sell this uh, I can't talk tonight. Oh my god. <laughs> they contacted the Mongolian government who said, yeah no that's ours. You can't sell that. And it turned into, like, this international custody battle for bones. Why wasn't this a bigger story? I, yeah, <laughs> I have no I idea. just now hearing about I this? have no idea because I hadn't heard of it either. But Paige Williams is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And this is about the fascinating world of fossils. Because you get to hear a little bit about people who are into these kind of things. How they get sold. Where they come from. Who gets to sell them. And it pretty much does for fossils what Susan Orlean did for orchids with the orchid thief. Like, it's just, she fixates on this one person, or I should say he fixates on this one thing, and it's about his fixation. Everybody's fixated. And it's so fascinating. So again, it is called The Dinosaur Artist, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Quest for Earth's Ultimate Trophy by Paige Williams. I just realized all of mine are nonfiction this week, so this is just like a deep non-fictiony nerd episode. It is, because I got another one, too. Woohoo! All right, my next pick is Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most by Stephen Johnson. And this came out 
last week on September 4th, but I was not on the show. So here we are. Um, Stephen Johnson writes really excellent contemporary science. It's like pop science psychology, social history um, that I always think of as kind of the same way that Malcolm Gladwell synthesizes big ideas, but Stephen Johnson does it while assuming that his readers are intelligent, which is definitely shade at Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm fine with it. Uh, So this book is about how big decisions were made in the past, um, how hard it is to make big decisions that are going to have long running consequences, um, and how to get better at making those kinds of decisions. Much has been written about how we are not great at making decisions on sort of flash moments, or really how humans make a jillion decisions a day, and we make most of them without having to think about them very much at all, um, because of sort of automatic processes and heuristics that our brains use. And if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow, um, this is that idea that we just make these snap decisions, but they're not really based on accurate ideas of the world. They're based on biases that are wired into our brains that make it easier to make decisions. And so Stephen Johnson's like, okay, if we know all of those things, what can we do to slow down and try to make better decisions when we have time, um, when you're not on the spot. So he gives examples of many things that have already happened in history, decisions that were made that had effects decades or centuries later that the the actors in the situation couldn't have prevented or didn't think about, uh, couldn't have predicted or didn't think about, and plays out, okay, here is this principle, here's this other principle. Um, One of the decision-making processes that serves as an example throughout the book is the Obama administration deciding if they were going to invade the compound where they suspected that Osama bin Laden was hiding out in 2011, and if so, how were they going to do it? And there were just a million questions leading up to like, how can we even try to confirm that he's in there? Then how would we get in? What would be the potential impact of various methods? And Stephen Johnson uses these very uh, big real-life examples to explain some of the principles of the book. There's not a whole – it's not like self-helpy or business how-to in the way of like there's not a worksheet in here that's like if you're making a big decision for your company or if you and your partner are trying to like – decide if you're going to have kids or not. Um, Here's how to do it. But you can pick up principles that will help you expand your own thinking about decisions like this. And it's just packed with, hey, did you know tidbits? Like, did you know that the first reference we can find to the pro-con, to writing a pro or con list is from Benjamin Franklin? I was hoping you were going to say friends. (laughs) Nope. Of course, it's from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, And there's a record of Charles Darwin making a pro-con list about should he get married or not. And like that's referred to in the book as well. So if you're into this stuff, thinking about how we think, thinking about how we make decisions, you'll find a lot to learn about big decisions of the past and how you can consider your own big decisions. And I think understand how decisions are being made out in the world from this. So it's Farsighted by Stephen Johnson. I have made the decision to talk more about dinosaurs. Great. My next book is Dactyl Hill Squad by Daniel Jose Older, book riot favorite, DJ Older. Yes, yes. Hi, Daniel. This is like my wheelhouse. It takes place in 1863 in the South during the Civil War, which is a subject that I like to read about. Mm -hmm. It's all the same history that happened during the Civil War. And there are dinosaurs who fight the battles. (laughs) 
So there's a little bit of a difference. I'm so into this. Plot twist. So there are a group of orphans who are visiting the capital city and, or in the south. Oh my gosh, I can't, I read it so long, I can't remember now. They're visiting the south and they are kidnapped by an evil man for nefarious reasons. Uh, Two of them happen to escape though and they go back to Brooklyn and train to fly Dactylback, which is like (laughs) flying on the back of dinosaurs and they're going to go back to the south and rescue their friends. I have already like done the music montage for this scene in my head, <laughs> like where they're training on Dactylback. I mean, it's awesome. One of the one of the kids, Mags, she has the ability to communicate with dinosaurs, like with her mind, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is awesome. It's just like a fun, exciting middle grade read. Has a very diverse cast of characters. It's very smart, and DJ Older makes history seem really fresh and fun. The lingo is great. I was looking at Goodreads reviews, I like to do that after I've read a book, and they were all like, this book is amazing, except this one person's like, well, I kind of want to give it a bad review because the science just doesn't work, because if dinosaurs still existed in the 19th century, none of the things that we know would be happening, and I was like, please let it go, it's a, it's a middle grade novel about dinosaurs fighting in the Civil War, like, just, just give him the pass, you know, like, come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> so, there's going to be a second book already. And somebody was moaning at him on Twitter the other day about Shadow Shaper, and he did let drop that he is working on a third one of those, too, his YA series, which is also awesome. So, this book rules. It's called Dactyl. I don't even, like, I can never tell with my main accent if I'm pronouncing things or people can understand what I'm actually saying. So it's D-A-C-T-Y-L. Hill. Like pterodactyl. Yes. Hill Squad. It's by Daniel Jose Older. Somehow it had escaped me that there were dinosaurs in that book. Yeah. Like, I had seen Dactyl, and I was like, oh, he probably has just named a place, like, after dinosaurs. And then in my way of, I try not to know much about books that I'm going to eventually read. I just hadn't, like, read the synopsis. Because it's uh, spoiler. Daniel the Older. Like, I'm obviously going to read this at some point. Yeah, Liberty, I'm Sorry. so mad that now I have to imagine <laughs> the Dactyl training sequence. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 80s montage. I have it in my head. Perfect. What kind of music goes with... Oh, it's like, hmm. it's going to be Survivor or something, you know. Yeah, it, I was The song has the word... Da, 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 yeah. Da. The word has, like, best in it somewhere. <laughs> Amazing. Would you like to hear about our next sponsor? Yes, and I know you'd really like to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I really would. I read this book last weekend before I realized it was a show sponsor. So I've been looking forward to talking about it. It's The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle. And here is the setup. At one point or another, we've all been asked to name five people, living or dead, with whom we'd like to have dinner. But why do we choose the people we do? And what if that dinner was actually to happen? These are the questions that Sabrina contends with in this utterly captivating novel. So here's what happens. Sabrina arrives at her 30th birthday dinner, and she's expecting to see her best friend there. But it's not just her best friend for their traditional birthday dinner. She is joined by Audrey Hepburn. Hmm. That's right. From Beyond the Grave. Her favorite professor from college. And the ex-boyfriend who was the like decade-long love of her life. She does not have any idea how this happened. Nobody at the table seems to know like 
how like how they bent space time for this to occur but this is the setup they're all accepting it they're they're sitting at dinner together for several hours and the whole book takes place over the course of the several hours while Sabrina sits there wrestling with these people from her life. She's had a falling out with the best friend recently, or really over the last couple of years, because the friend uh, got married and moved away out of New York City, where they had both been living, had a kid and has been just less engaged. Um, So it's like, well, you're my best friend. We're at our birthday dinner, but also things are weird between us. And then Audrey Hepburn is there. And then her ex-boyfriend is there. And that did not end in a way that she feels great about. And her father, oh, I forgot to mention that her father is there from whom she's been estranged for like basically her entire life. So she's assessing these very personal relationships in front of Audrey Hepburn and her college professor who have different things to weigh in about as well. And there are some really juicy questions here about uh, love, about friendship, about romance and fate, and if that's enough in relationships or what it might compensate for or might not compensate for. It's It was a really good read. I read it in one sitting uh, and raised some interesting questions. Wasn't too heavy. Um, I thought it was a great setup as well. Like we have all done this game of the five people, but what if you actually had to do it? And Sabrina realizes at one point, like she made this list thinking it would be interesting for her to talk to each of those five people, but not actually thinking about the mix of them at the table. And of course, never considering it, that it would happen, uh, that they would all be there together. And so the ways that these people from her life that she's looked to and experienced in different ways add up together is also really interesting. Uh, so that's The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle, or Surly, I am not sure, it's S-E-R-L-E. Uh, one of the more creative setups for a novel that I've encountered in a long time. Awesome. Yes. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. All right. Now, Liberty, are you ready to get skeptical? Uh, Did I stop? (laughs) That's much better than when you just say no to questions. (laughs) Uh, So my next pick this week is... The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emery. The this is a like this is a super deep dive. It is a full history of how the Myers-Briggs personality test was developed and really kind of how it took over the world. And the core shocking revelation if you're not very familiar with the Myers-Briggs but like you've probably had to take a variation of this personality test at some point whether it was in school or for a job application where you determine like I'm an INTJ like are you introverted are you thinking versus intuitive whatever else there's there's stuff all over the internet about like the Myers-Briggs personalities of Harry Potter characters like you can't swing a cat in the modern world without running into Myers-Briggs and it's this way it's formed this shorthand that people use to like explain themselves and their behaviors and ways of thinking to other people and to classify people. And like it's deeply involved in like who gets jobs places. And at one point, the CIA was using it like this is serious stuff. It's widespread. And so the big revelation is it's based on no real empirical evidence. (laughs) Like (laughs) there are zero studies that show that these classifications are real, um, that that these are consistent personality traits from people. Like one of the core things of Myers-Briggs is the type you have is the type you will always have. That type is consistent and lifelong. Um, There's no evidence of that. (laughs) There's really no evidence of any of it. And so the big question then is like, how 
if there's no evidence that it's based on anything real, did it, did they sell it to everyone as, you know, a way to determine who you're going to hire or which job to put different CIA agents into or who makes it onto reality shows and doesn't? Online dating platforms use this stuff. Like, it's just everywhere. Personality testing, psychometric testing is a $2 billion industry and Myers-Briggs birthed the commercial use of personality testing. And Merv Emery goes deep, including like, you know, requesting to get documents from the archives of Myers-Briggs and being told that for some reason she's not approved to see them until she takes a re-education course that's essentially like swearing an oath to the Myers-Briggs test. Um, If you are a Myers-Briggs like dedicated lifer, you're probably not going to like a lot of what you find in this book, but it's probably very important um, for you to check it out. As someone who's really interested in psychology and personality, I knew a little of this stuff, like that there's no empirical support for Myers-Briggs, but I was really fascinated by the history of how it got to be what it is today. Um, just like, a, how did we get this pulled over on us? And also it continues. Like now that the book is out, are all these major companies going to stop using the Myers-Briggs? Probably not, but it's nice to have this added to the conversation. I thought it was really fascinating. So that's The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emery. I have taken that test. I am an IJKL. <laughs> Please uh, hit me with your joke. That was it. It was it was the alphabet. I don't know. I don't know. I it <laughs> it's late. Oh, Liberty. That's how we know it's late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, is that? I was getting like, I'm joking. Something K, something L. <laughs> it shouldn't actually be late for me because I've only been up for like ten hours. I went to bed at seven this morning and got up at nine thirty. Oh, so pretty good for me it's pretty right, I, sl- well. I slept in late <laughs> all right okay so it is but i'm a little tired i can tell because i'm already regretting my last pick i can't believe That's, that you're picking this book. yeah so it, oh okay <laughs> it's not like never in a million years did i think i would read this book and if someone whose opinion i highly i highly respected hadn't told me like it was amazing i probably would not have but it's actually incredibly fascinating and things to think about for everyone but it's it is my least favorite subject and i'm already going oh i don't want to talk about this uh it is called no place to go how public toilets fail our private needs by leslie lowe um i have not actually finished it i'm halfway through it uh i've just been reading a little bit at a time because bathroom talk is not something I handle well. As you know, I don't like the... I, like, really could not believe that you put a book on here that had the word toilet in the title. Yeah, I'm already freaking out. Um, But it's fascinating. And basically what what Leslie DeLoe does is examines public restrooms, like, throughout history, Mm -hmm. and, you know, in contemporary time, from, like, London to San Francisco to Toronto, and how they fail a lot of people. Um, how restrooms used to be more readily available to a lot more people and how now they're more privatized, like, uh, you know, public restrooms, but they're in private businesses, you know, like you have to purchase something to use one. And like the logic behind that makes a lot of sense, sure, but um, people who live on the streets, people without homes who can't afford to purchase something, you know, they aren't allowed to use these and what a problem that is. 
and how kids opt out of sports because they don't feel comfortable, you know, like running off into the bushes at the edge of the field if they have to use the bathroom, and how people with invisible disabilities like Crohn's disease and IBS are afraid to go out in public because public transportation has so few places for them if something were to happen. And she talks about the bathroom bills that affect the rights of trans people. Um, just mm. a lot of stuff. It's really fascinating. It's a lot of things that we take for granted or things that we've never actually thought about. Like, this is a lot of stuff I've never thought about. And, you know, all joking aside, like, about the subject and whatever, it's actually really important and I'm definitely going to finish it. Again, it's called No Place to Go, How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs by Leslie Lowe. That does sound very fascinating. It is. And, and you know, this, this woman on Twitter who I follow who's always spot on with her recommendations, she was like, I did not think I was going to read this. It's amazing. So I was like, okay, I would not think I would read that. And I picked it up, and I'm glad that I did. Yeah, you don't think about how yeah. important... Yeah, how important that stuff really is. But it is so ingrained in life because it's one of the facts of life. Yeah. Hmm. But I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're done with that. We're done My with that. My face is so red. <laughs> <laughs> this should be like a listener perk is getting to see a photo of your <laughs> blushing <laughs> after that segment. Uh, I can picture it and it's beautiful. Okay. My last pick is a paperback reminder. Uh, actually, this is next week. I, I'm just all confused about space time because we're recording late. We're recording next week's show early. I'm going to be gone. Like, uh, who knows what's happening? So on September... Oh, that's why. It's because it's like in between publications for some reason or something. Nope, it's not. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the wheels are both. coming off. <laughs> we, we made it almost to the end. The paperback, you know what? I'm looking at the wrong edition online. That's what it is. The paperback came out last week. Okay, that's so I'm, cool. I'm fine. Yes. Thanks, Obama. My Hopi Changey White House Years by David Litt. Uh, David Litt was a White House Obama White House Obama, an Obama White House speechwriter. He worked his way up from much lower in the White House structure. And he was with the Obama administration for many, many years. This was, I am pretty sure this was the first of the Obama uh, group White House memoirs that I've read now that I have read all of them. It was widely listed as one of the best books of 2017. And it's a really I thought really like pretty pitch perfect mix of memoir of political commentary, because you have to be so familiar with policy to be able to write the president's speeches that David Litt has a very um, both broad and deep understanding of what was going on in the White House, the priorities, the messages that they were trying to get out. And also sometimes the ways that he bungled getting the messages out. So you get his stories. There's also he's growing up. He's like very young, um, straight out of pretty much straight out of college when he joins the Obama campaign and not much older than that when they find themselves in the White House. So he comes into being a real adult person uh, who understands the gravity and the power of the job that he has and of what it means to work in the White House and to try to govern and help serve the American people day in and day out, but also to try to get your joke into the State of the Union address um, or into the White House Correspondents' Dinner. 
Um, it's a really just wonderful mix of his own stories. He's very self-deprecating. If you liked all the personal stories in Who Thought This Was a Good Idea by Alyssa Mastermonaco, you'll like all of that stuff in Thanks Obama, as well as the perspective on a little bit more of the policy. I really loved it last year. It's out in paperback now. I think great uh, a great reminder going into election season as well of um, what progressive politics are about in the country, some of the successes that we had during the eight years that the Obama administration was in the White House. And it helped, like it did make me sad about the current situation, or it reminded me of many of the reasons why I'm sad about the current situation. But it also gave me a lot of hope. And I think that that's important right now, too. So out in paperback, if you missed it last year. Thanks, Obama, my Hopi Changey White House years by David Litt. All right. Okay, we made it. (laughs) (laughs) Those are new books. What are you going to read next? Uh, I'm going to start The Impossible Girl by Lydia Kang because I keep hearing that it's fabulous. So it's about a female resurrectionist in New York in the mid-19th century, uh, which means that basically she has a job digging up fresh corpses for anatomy schools and doctors. Um, But it turns out that she also has two hearts. And some people know her secret, and there are some people who would like to dissect her now, before, you know, she's actually passed away. So, Whoa. Uh, it sounds cool, right? I mean, if it does you're sound coolish cool. and weird like me, I think it sounds pretty <laughs> rad. Uh, what are you going to read? I have a couple contenders. I have, like, just finished doing the reading for this episode. So... I should pick up Ordinary People by Diana Evans, which I believe came out, well, it'll be today by the time you're listening to this, but I didn't get to it. It's a supposed to be just a really wonderful novel. I've had my eye on it for a while, so I should be getting into that, but I'm also eyeing The Governess Game by Tessa Dare, and I could kind of use a romance now, and I haven't read Tessa Dare before, oh. so it'll, it'll be one of those. All right. Yeah. So that's it for <laughs> I'm like, today. what happens now? I don't remember. <laughs> we do the end of our show. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Google Play. Go to g.co slash play slash all the books for $10 off your first audiobook that is listed at $10 or more. So you can have fun playing that game. Uh, again, that's g.co slash play slash all the books. To The Great American Read, be sure to tune in and watch Meredith Vieira, and you can participate in the voting. And to The Dinner List, by Rebecca Searle, which gets the Rebecca Shinsky stamp of approval. If you have anything to talk to us about, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. And if you've got a minute to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts, maybe congratulate us on making words at the end of the long <laughs> Monday. <laughs> I don't know. We would certainly appreciate that. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, you've been listening and you know we have to stop. So <laughs> you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the and meantime, in the meantime ooh, happy, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.